You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. Well, let's get into the Bible. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 28 this morning. We read this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left, is, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's precious word. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are alive and well and active at this church and in every church that has a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you are subversively and actively at work renewing the world and that you are raising up disciples who want to follow you. And God, I pray in my fatigue today that you would just show up in power like you always do when I'm weak and be able to speak about one of the topics that we don't want to talk about as disciples, the issue of suffering and drinking the cup. So, Lord, speak through me, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, um, my family is one of those families. You know how you're either a family who eats at the dinner table together, or you don't? It kind of depends on what way your family signs off on that. And my family was, we ate dinner together. And one of the things that my, my parents did, they did a lot of things right, but one of the things that they did right was sometimes they would pick a, a book, like a biography or a story, and we would read it as we were kind of like, putting plates, stacking plates and stuff like that. And I remember uh, one, one of the times they, we read the autobiography of Johnny Cash, which inspired my love of Johnny Cash, his faith and his mud and the blood authenticity of his life, his admissions about his addictions and his struggles with those demons, as well as his artistry. And well, of course, inspired the cover band that I'm in, of which Brian, who was with me here as the drummer in the band and the whole thing. So it was a fun thing. But one time we read this book, and some of you may have read this book. It's a book called The Hiding Place. Um, it's a true life story of a woman named Corey Tenboom who endured excruciating loss and suffering 
at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. If you've never read the book, you should go get it and you should read it. It's a book, you, it's a kind of a must read. You need to read it. And, I, and as we were reading this story at the dinner table, I think her story, as I was looking at it this week, I'm like, I think that's the first time that I had a vivid exposure to mankind's capacity for inhumanity, for mankind's capacity for violence, and the reality that very good people can face suffering, and it's just not fair. And I remember not liking that. It made me squirm to hear about this Jesus-loving family in Amsterdam go through this series of events in their lives where they were committed to the things of Jesus. They were committed to do justice and to do good. And part of that for them was to create a hiding place, that's the name of the book, to protect frightened Jews from the Nazis who were rounding up the Jews, only to be discovered and to have throughout the war the entire family wiped out and die lonely in concentration camps and have the only survivor be Corey Tenboom. And that whole story, and it just, it, ah, it just made me really uncomfortable. Now, I will say this in saying that I loved Corey Tenboom's nobility, I loved her capacity to forgive and her strength. But I was really uncomfortable with the story of suffering. It was a good family, a good family. And around that same time, my youth pastor, Herb Pettigo, he said something that really stuck with me. You know how it is when you're like listening to sermons, you'll, you know, the main point of the sermon is one thing, but you hear one other thing that, that really, really sticks with you. You guys do this to me all the time. I'd linger longer. You'll go, oh, I like that point you made. No, that was not a point. That was just a single sentence in something I was saying. But you know how that happens? It just kind of comes out at you and stuff. So I accept that. That's fine when you come up to me. But he said, he said, he said this line that I liked a lot better than Corey Tenboom's story. And the line was, God doesn't make our, our smooth path path, but he puts springs in the wagon. God doesn't give us a smooth path in life, but he puts springs in our wagon. And I was like, yeah, I like that better. I like that a whole lot better than Corey Tinboom's true story of suffering and pain because I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with God letting good people suffer. I didn't want to suffer. And I preferred the idea of, I like the vision of Jesus is coming right alongside me. We're just putting springs in my wagon and another couple springs in my wagon so that I, it would keep me from suffering too much. Now, I'll admit it. But we all, I think, have to admit, none of us like suffering. And for sure, please, I hope this is not true, you don't seek suffering. We all want to think, and maybe we still have some thoughts like this, we all want to think that accepting Jesus' offer of abundant life, remember it says that in the English translation, I've come that you might have life, you might have it abundant, or life to the full. We all want to think that that means following him into an abundance of prosperity. Since Jesus is God pouring out the abundant life of God into our lives, then we think Jesus is gonna, he's gonna increase our health, and he's gonna increase our wealth, and he's gonna increase how many relationships we have, and he's gonna increase our influence. We wanna think that. We wanna think that following Jesus into abundance is also about, into an abundance of comfort. Since Jesus has compassion on us as his harassed sheep, then he's just going to keep adding so many springs into my wagon that I get to the point where I've got so many springs that nothing can come along that will disrupt my serenity. So abundant life is it's going to be prosperity, it's going to be comfort, and one final observation is it's about following him into an abundance of success. 
Because Jesus said, right, I have come that you might have life and you might have it to the full or sometimes translated abundant. And so that means Jesus is going to help me live my best life now. That's, in fact, a Christian book published within the last 20 years. I'll have my best life now where every facet of my life, it's going to get bigger and better and faster and stronger. And because of the culture that we live in, which very much desires and even expects these things, let's admit it, we live in a culture that expects prosperity, comfort, success. Because of that, most of us, we don't have a place of, for suffering in our walk with Jesus. In fact, you're even maybe uncomfortable that I'm even using the word right now, fearful that if I even use the word magically, you're going to suffer this afternoon. Let me read you something that comes from a book. And again, I highly recommend this book. I've been recommending it for years. It's written by Pastor Timothy Keller, who himself is going through suffering as he's fighting pancreatic cancer. He wrote a book years ago called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It is a must-read book for anybody who wants to follow Jesus and understand suffering. But in it, let me put up a quote of what he wrote with Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, most cultures, most cultures, unlike our own, Expect suffering as inevitable and see it as a means of strengthening and enriching us. Our secular culture, on the other hand, is perhaps the worst in history at helping its members face suffering. In secular culture, the meaning of life is to be free to choose what makes you happy in this life. Suffering comes along and destroys that meaning. And so in the secular view, suffering can have no meaning at all. It can't be a chapter in your life story. It's just the interruption or even the end of your life story. And some of us have a lot of that that's kind of affecting even our own thoughts of following Jesus and where do we put suffering in our lives. And so today we're continuing our study, Come and Follow Me, where what we're doing is through this fall season, right up before we get to Advent, we're trying to find these holy huddle moments, which is where Jesus takes the disciples aside or the disciples take him aside, or today a mom takes Jesus aside, and they have these private conversations about what does it mean to be a disciple, this deepening conversation. And I think our apprenticeship to Jesus has been deepened. Let's just do a quick review of the things that we've learned in these private conversations. The very first one, Jesus pulls some disciples aside as he says, the title slide, come follow me. And what we were thinking about and we continually are thinking about is what Jesus is calling us into is to continually re-engineer our lives around following him. Not the talking heads on our favorite radio shows or newscasts or whatever. Him. We are re-engineering our lives on a daily basis of following him. The second thing that we saw is that Jesus looked out on the harassed people and he pulls his disciples aside. He says, look at the harvest. It's plentiful, but we need workers. And the the second thing we heard Jesus say is, please pray to God the Father that he would send people into the harvest field. And by the way, be one of those workers. The third thing that we heard when the disciples pulled Jesus aside and said, why are you talking in parables? Why don't you just like stay what you want to really say in the clearest of ways? And in it, they get into this conversation. We're out of it. We learned the third thing that Jesus says, my disciples, this is what they're about. They have hearts that are prepared for active listening to me. And that's what marks them as they follow me. They are prepared for active listening to me. 
The fourth thing we looked at is when Jesus himself pulled the disciples aside and he said to them, he goes, who do people think that I am? And they get into this conversation. And out of this conversation, we heard Jesus appeal to the disciples is, I want people who will gaze, not glance, gaze at who I really am and what I'm really all about. And that is a mark of the disciple. That's the fourth thing we learned. The fifth thing that we learned when Jeremiah Spears spoke was that God is very serious about forgiveness. And we learned that a mark of a disciple is to continually be a person who's working out the ramifications of how do you forgive as you have been forgiven much. Just look at the cross. And then last week, the fifth week, we talked about, and we're going to see more threads of it this week, is where the disciples pull Jesus aside. I would have been, I would have loved to have been in this conversation, but they pull him aside and they go, hey, how would you rank us? Who would you think is the greatest? And then Jesus says to them, he pulls a kid into the the conversation. He says, you want to know who my greats are? My greats are the people who surrender all concern about ranking. Those are my greats, the people who surrender the concern about greatness. That's a lot for us to interact with. And I hope you're still kind of, it's popping in your mind and in your spirit of like, where am I with that, Jesus? Am I following you? Am I actually a follower? And that brings us to our passage today. Today, it's not Jesus pulling the disciples aside. It's not the disciples pulling Jesus aside today. I love this. It's a disciple mama. A disciple mama pulls Jesus aside. And with her boys, Mama Boanerges. Now, you you don't read Boanerges in this text, but here's what I love about the Bible. If you look and you flip over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Excuse me, Mark 3, 17. The book of Mark. Mark is the only place that records this. Mark in 3.17 says that Jesus nicknamed James and John Zebedee. He gave them a nickname. I love that about Jesus. He, what would it be my nickname? I, I don't even want to know. What would, he, what would be your nickname? I don't know. But Jesus gives these guys a nickname. And he calls them Bo and Ergaze, which means sons of thunder, which tells you a lot about their story. And so Mama Bo and Ergaze, The mama of James and John Zebedee, she comes and she kneels at Jesus' feet. And I'm looking at the text. I don't know for sure. She's at least trying to show honor, maybe even overly showcase honor slash kiss up. I don't know. We'll see. But she kneels at his feet and she asks Jesus for a special favor. And the favor is not for herself. It's for her two beautiful boys, the Bo and Ergase twins. Now, before we get to what she gets, she's talking about, you got to know this. Here's the setting, right? We've, as we've been studying this, the 12, the disciples, they've already been told many, many times already up to this point that Jesus is saying, yes, I'm going to have a crown and I'm going to get there through a cross. The leaders are going to kill me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be offed. I'm going to be crucified. They've been told this. And, and yet, even though they've been told this, they have asked Jesus to rank them. Remember, we covered that. And they go, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And even after hearing Jesus clearly tell them, here's this. Here's a quote from Matthew 18 from last week. Jesus told them, quote, whoever takes the lowly position is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's, that's all happened. All these conversations have already happened. In spite of that, the Bo and Erges twins are still thinking about and relentlessly pursuing comfort and privilege through rank, and they get dear old mom to help out. And here's what mama does. Look at it carefully. Mama doesn't ask. Mama tells Jesus. 
She doesn't ask, she tells him. Here's my translation. Basically, she tells him, give your word that my sons will be awarded the highest places of honor and authority in your kingdom, which we all know comes along with it, a lot of comfort and privileges. One at your right, one at your left. I'll let you decide which one sits on which side. And at that point, Jesus makes an observation about the bow and air gaze boys, but he also asks them a question. And the observation is, you guys have no idea what you're asking me to do here. You don't have any clue. And then his question was, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, when Jesus is is talking about the cup, Jesus knew his scriptures. And Jesus is very much connecting his story of what God is doing to the Messiah, Messiah, to the Old Testament imagery where drinking a cup more rarely could be about consuming or taking in God's blessing. But most of the time, through the prophets, drinking a cup was about taking in the refining or the consequential work of God and drinking down the dregs. So Jesus is asking them if they, in their own lives, are going to be willing to drink their own cross-like experience. Because Jesus knows, I'm talking about the cross. I'm going to drink the cup of the cross. Can you drink your own cross-like experience in their own way to their crown in the kingdom of God? Can you do that? And they unthinkingly answer, because of how how would they have known what he meant? We're struggling to understand what he meant. They didn't know what he meant by drink the cup, but they unthinkingly said, we can do that. And then Jesus tells them, well, indeed, you will drink from my cup. You will. Part of what he's saying is, is part of following me is going to include some kind of your own cross-like experiences in your life. It's part of following me. And by the way, church history tells us that James was the first of the remaining apostles who was killed, martyred for his faith. And we do know from church history that John was one of the only apostles who died of old age, but not after having suffered exile and being boiled in hot oil and suffering against violent torture. So they drank the cup. But Jesus also added this. He says, by the way, it's my Father in heaven who's the only one who's ultimately going to decide the places that are prepared for you in the kingdom. About this time, as we read in the text, the other disciples hear about it, and they get indignant. And I looked it up. What does that mean literally in the original language? They become greatly afflicted. They become greatly afflicted. By the fact that the Bow and Ergase family are cutting ahead of them secretly to try to weasel in the front of the line. But, but let's be honest, that's not the only reason they're afflicted. They're also afflicted because they too were just as concerned about an assured future of comfort and privilege. They want that too. So Jesus calls another huddle to teach him. And here's kind of would be my translation of it. Where Jesus says to them, look, guys, in the world at large... Greatness, comfort, privilege, it's structured in. It's baked into culture. It's part of the structures of it. Where people on top, who you all clearly want to be in this holy huddle, have greater access to comfort and privilege than everyone else who's beneath them. That's how it works in the world. We all know that. 
But that is not how it will be with those who want to be my disciples. That's not how it's going to work. You're going to throw out those structures. All those structures that are baked in, you're going to have no disregard for. You're going to throw them out, and you're going to live as servants and slaves. You're going to follow my pattern to the point of serving, to the point of laying yourself aside, and maybe even to the point of laying down your life for others as I'm about to myself, as I'm going to lay down my life as a ransom for many. See, I think Jesus is calling us, as he was trying to call his disciples then to know, is that suffering and service is part of following me. I mean, it sounds funny that I have to even make this like as a main point of a sermon. But it's so under-talked about. That suffering and service, it's a part of what it means to be a disciple. Now, in thinking about this, let's pay really close attention to the fact that the reality of suffering and service in our disciples to Jesus, it is to- that's, that is totally counter to the prevailing mood and desires in our culture right now. It's totally counter to how our culture thinks about success. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of my heroes of the faith, he wrote a book called Life Together. I'm making a lot of book recommendations today. Another one, Read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote that book when he was with a small group of Christians, no megachurch here, who were trying to work out the ramifications of what does it mean to be a disciple following Jesus under the rule of Nazi Germany while the Nazis are hijacking the Lutheran church and wrapping Jesus around a Nazi flag. And he's working out the ramifications of that within this group being life together. And here's what he says. And remember, this is in the context of the Nazis trying to hijack the Lutheran church. He says this, in a world where success is the measure and justification of all things, the figure of him who was sentenced and crucified remains a stranger and is at best the object of pity. Underline this sentence. The world will allow itself to be subdued only by success. And there's some of us who are like, ooh, some of that's in me. So we got to remember that this, is, this, this thing that Jesus is saying, suffering and service is part, this is counter to what the world says about success. Here's another one. It's, how they, it's counter to how our culture thinks about power. Christianity Today's new resident theologian, Russell Moore, wrote an article recently in Christianity Today, and the, the article is called, Why Shamelessness is Now a Superpower. And he's all, it's all about our rock star political heroes. Doesn't matter what side you skew on. That's immaterial to me. But it's our rock star leaders, our rock star pastors, our rock stars. And the title of the, the, the thing was Shamelessness is a Superpower. And here's what he says about power. In a performative age, brazenness gives an illusion of strength. To apologize or to repent is to look weak. And when people expect their leaders to be avatars of vicarious power, weakness is the only unforgivable sin. Ugh. That's the world we're living in. But I deeply appreciate the fact that Jesus, unlike so much of world culture and church culture, tainted by world culture, thinks. Jesus is clear with us about reality. Jesus clearly told us in John 16, He said, I'm quoting him, in this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. He tells us that life in a sin-cursed world, it's going to bring trouble and loss and sorrow and suffering. He's not lying. He's telling us the truth. It's a broken world. And he also tells us that as he overcame sin and death through suffering, he overcame it through his own suffering on a cross, he can also lead us into overcoming through the experiences of our own crosses in life. And I also love what Jesus said in a passage today to James and John, where he says, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will. And he said to all the rest of the disciples, and by the way, you will repudiate the world system and you will live as slaves. You will live as servants to the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear that all of his disciples, and that includes you and me, if you said yes to Jesus anywhere along the line in your life, every one of us is going to drink the dregs of our own cross-like suffering in life. It's not like he's saying, you're doomed. More is coming your way because you're following me. No, he's like, this is just how it is. It's a broken world. And then he says, and all disciples will learn to release the nagging concern that if they serve others or they live as slaves for Jesus, that they'll end up less or they'll end up being less as a result of serving others. And instead, they'll learn to become people who seek the benefit of God and seek the benefit of the people around them and seek the benefit of the world. You see, when we do not have... Jesus' clear teaching integrated into our view of life, then what happens is we become all too easily defeated, destroyed by real life. I think that's a lot of what's happening post-pandemic in the American church. A lot of people are leaving churches. You want to know why? I think part of the symptom is, is that people didn't have this stuff integrated into their faith. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome. And so we end up in this place, as Pastor Keller said at the beginning, where we're left in a place where, quote, suffering is a bad interruption, or it's even the end of your life story. If we don't get this integrated, but when we do, when we do have Jesus' clear teaching, it's integrated into our view of life. We're not threatened by it. Then we not only, we're not destroyed, we're actually refined. We're made more beautiful. We're made more whole through our own cross-like experiences. So here's where this leads this uh, uh, leads us. I've cited Dallas Willard more than a few times during this study, and I'll tell you why. Because he's a man who spent so much of his life as a Christian, as a world-renowned philosopher-scholar at USC in Southern California, as also well as a writer constructing a clear idea about what does actual discipleship, followership of Jesus look like? What does it look like to truly be an apprentice? And recently, one of Dallas's partners in spiritual formation ministry, he wrote an article about his late friend, because Dallas has gone home to be with Jesus. And in the article, James Brian Smith, he wrote this. He said, Dallas taught that disciplines, like spiritual disciplines, such as prayer, solitude, and scripture memorization are only one part of the formation process. The second part is the work of the Holy Spirit, and the third is learning how to see life's trials and events in light of God's presence and power. 
This is like a guru on Christian spiritual formation. And he's saying, you see the, the, how it divides out into a slice of a pie? One third of our formation into the image of Jesus Christ is through suffering, pain, loss, grief. And that observation, it completely squares with what Jesus is telling us. If we think about our discipleship at all, most of us think in terms of like, um, okay, go to church, read your Bible, get baptized somewhere along the line, right? And then maybe you go a little further and it's like, I'll go to a prayer retreat once in a while and I read my Bible or have it read to me. And if that's the, the vast majority of us, if we think about formation at all, those are the things that we think about. Then fewer of us think, Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's involved, right? The Holy Spirit's involved prompting me to go to the Abba Father and then to, and prompting me as I read the Bible and not understand it to illuminate. Okay, and so fewer, fewer still of us think, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's helping. And I would have to say even fewer of us accept life's trials and see them as a part of Jesus' presence with us that is helping us steadily learn how to live the full life of the kingdom of God into every corner of human existence, including the darkest alleys of suffering. Jesus is clear. Suffering and service is a part of following me. And so for us, what that means is trust Jesus in accepting your cup in life. And I realized, listen, this morning, that is easy for me to preach. And that is not so easy when you have hard things that happen or you get hit by sneaker waves of suffering in life. I get that. So please understand, I get that. But the truth is, is none of us gets a special avoid all suffering pass in life. We don't. Now, we could have arguments about the range of suffering that, you know, well, you got off easier in your 80 plus years of life. And I, I had, sure. But none of us gets out of avoiding all suffering. We're all going to be faced with some kind of cross-like cups of suffering in this life. And the standard approach to that reality, even for followers of Jesus, is to ignore it, medicate it, eat the feelings, shop the feelings, whatever, ignore it. Do everything in our power and our privilege to sort of pad our lives with enough comforts and backup plans and insurance policies that we do with everything that we do within our power. We're going to push suffering to the outside margins for as far out the margins as we push it, can push it out for as long as we possibly can. That's what normally we tend to do. We try to ignore it or if we can't ignore it. We try to fight it. We do everything in our power to try to play God. It's like, I'm going to construct that smooth path in front of me. Look at that one square inch that I've paved right in front of my path, God. I will protect myself from all sorrows. I can do this, God. We try to try to fight it. And then we try to make a smooth road. Or we're like, Jesus, I'll help you install the, the springs in my wagon. Let's put about 20 of them in here. I'll shop on Amazon. We're going to install springs everywhere so that my serenity never gets disrupted. We either ignore it or we fight it. But being a real disciple of Jesus means trusting him past the point of our comfort and into the places of discomfort. Accepting those cups that are loaded with the dregs and their dregs of suffering and loss and grief. 
What does that look like, Andy? Well, here's some thoughts. This is not a full list. One of them would be to accept that Jesus is there with you, weeping with you. Accept that it's actually happening and just be there in the fields. Read the Psalms and figure out how, how do I feel what I'm actually feeling? How do I feel loss? How do I feel grief? How do I feel sorrow? Accept that he's with you, weeping with you. Accept that you've got to have at least a couple stories if you've walked with Jesus for a while to, to go, he knows how to do crazy redemptive things with the nastiest dregs of ingredients. He knows how to do that. Accept that. Accept that sometimes better than most of the tools at his disposal Except that oftentimes he uses suffering to drive us like a nail deeper into the heart of the Trinity. And that sometimes that's the best tool to get us there. Except that drinking this cup in trust of him can be one of the most powerful witnesses. Sometimes in this world that doesn't have anything to do with God is in fact the most powerful witness to the glory and the power of Jesus Christ far greater, 100 times greater than Martin Luther King's Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It is that powerful when somebody can suffer with a dignity in Christ's presence with them. And to accept that on the other side of this cup in this life, the apostle wrote to the church at Corinth to remember that our light and momentary affliction, our cup, is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. And accept that. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. The whole extended Nye family with the adopted Carrie Weber. Carrie Nye. Carrie Nye to come get all set up for us. Um, And as they get plugged in to lead us in worship, as I wrap up, let let me try to do this. I want to try to paint two pictures from two phrases in your mind as we finish this. The first phrase is abundant life, right? Because that's, that's how it's translated in the English Bible. That's a phrase in the English translators use to describe this life that Jesus offers his disciples. I've come that you might have life to the full or come that you might have abundant life. Now just sit with that for a second. What images pop in your mind? I'll admit to you the problem I, that ends up in my mind. The problem in our culture is that a phrase like that, abundant life, gets immediately hijacked in our minds to become this picture of comfort and privilege. Abundant life. Which, if that's the image in our mind, it sets us up for a nosedive. The, the instant comfort and privilege get ripped out of our hands. And we don't have any control to get it back. Now, I know the English translators translated it that, abundant life. But I think you might be a little bit like me that maybe I need some different words. So the other phrase I want to give you is one I stumbled upon from the writings of Dallas Willard. I apologize. I'm citing him again, but I'm sorry. He's just a very wise man. And he translated the phrase abundant life this way. Indestructible life. Indestructible life. Which I think paints for us a picture of a life that's going to get battered. It's going to, stuff's going to get thrown at it. We're going to get hit with things. Whatever, however many springs are in our wagon, we're going to get hit. But it's a life that can stand up to anything. It's indestructible. 
That's the picture of real abundant life or life to the full. It's a picture of a life it's going to face. We will face all kinds of things that frail human beings face in a sin-cursed world. But it's a life that's not destroyed by it. You don't just crumple and just melt into a pile. It's not destroyed by it. It's still able to stand no matter what we face. That's the life that Jesus invites us into. So Jesus is really clear. Suffering and service, it's a part of following me. And the call is let's, easy sentence to say, and I'm in on this too. Let's allow ourselves to be formed into people who can trust Jesus and accept the cups that he brings into our lives. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, I guess, man, thank you that you're not telling us something or asking of us something that you weren't willing to do. You suffer by letting the Son come to earth and go through the most excruciating death and face for the first time, the blinding blackness of being severed from experiencing God's presence while he was on the cross because of our sin. That must have been agony. Thank you that your agony has given us life. And God, help us because we're frightened. We don't like suffering. We prefer comfort. We prefer privilege. But Lord, help us to be people who can trust you and accept these cups and know there's goodness and there's beauty in what you have for us on the other side. Help us to be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.com. Thank you.